Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. It's great to have you with us. My name is Amy, and together with my husband, Johnny, we lead the church here in Nottingham, England. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And if we can help you in any way at all, feel free to get in touch and email us at info at Okay, let's jump into the podcast. Well, I've used this image before, this particular image before, and it's of a man called, uh, I'm going to re- repurpose it today, there's a man called Philippe Petit, and we have a picture of Philippe uh, just coming up here. Some of you have um, come across him, some of you watched the documentary, which is a picture of him and his life story and what he got up to, and this guy, if you don't know, was known as, and in fact the documentary around him was known as Man on Wire, that was what he was called, and he was called that because in August 1974, he got up to some shenanigans. He really did. Uh, he, and uh, we probably can have the next slide, this is what he did. He, he established uh, a route, <laughs> I think that's the correct term, between one tower of the Twin Towers, which at that point um, had just been built, and the other tower. And on that day in August 1974, he. Uh, attached this wire between the roofs, which, by the way, I mean, how do you do that? Uh, he did it by firing it um, on a bow and arrow. He basically used a bow to fire it from one to the other, suspended this wire, and then walked across the wire. He walked on a wire between the two towers. He, he made eight passes uh, between them 45 minutes, uh, for 45 minutes before the police could get him, 1,350 feet up. Now, the idea, this is fascinating, the idea was conceived in the dentist office as he was waiting, I don't know, to get a regular checkup, to to have some drilling done. What was he doing? Does it matter? The fact is, he opened up a newspaper, saw a picture of the two towers, and the thought that came into his mind was, I'm going to walk between those. What kind of person, what kind of crazy fool thinks up that? But he did this. As he came down, eventually uh, he was captured by the police, and they didn't know what to sort of charge him with. So then on, the, on the arrest sheet, they simply put man on wire. And eventually they let him off scot-free. They said, if you perform in Central Park, we won't charge you, and that's what happened. Now, how do you do that? I mean, you need loads of training and all this other stuff, yeah, but how do you actually perform that? There's something, I think, for us this morning as we think about The equipment that he used, particularly I want to focus in on the wire. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna walk across a wire like that, you've gotta have a wire that has tension in it. It's no good that thing being slack, you know, the the wind at that height is extraordinary, blowing about. That thing has to be tense, has to be pulled tight. There has to be tension in the wire. When the tension's lost, you're in real trouble, particularly when the stakes are that high. And I think this is an image for faith, not least because faith is like walking a wire. It's not easy all the time, and we feel like we're swaying around, and it's at times very difficult. But I think it's also an image for prayer. I think it's an image as well for how we are to pray. Last week we talked, we opened our series, Thy Kingdom Come, speaking about how if we want to learn to pray, we need to pray a simple prayers, we need to learn to pray Honest prayers, praise you are, not as you think you should be. And we also talked about how one side of the wire 
We have the Father, this vision of the Father, the good, gracious, kind, approachable Father who welcomes us in as son and daughters into his arms. We don't need to be afraid of him because he's done everything necessary for us to approach him, right? The good Father. And if that in the Christian faith was all that there was, perhaps we would expect the rest of the Lord's Prayer to continue something like this. Our Father in heaven, you're so cuddly-waddly. You're so fuzzy and furry. You're, oh, you just, you, little old you. And you, you know, and the things you've done, and oh, 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 it's just so great to pray, and I, Oh, you're so warm, and I just love the way your beard's so soft. Maybe we'd expect the rest of the Lord's Prayer to be a little bit like that, but that's actually not what we find. Yes, we have a vision of the Father, Abba, Abba, Papa, intimacy, but we also, next, the next line, the very next line, we read this, hallowed be your name. And that creates a tension. And that tension is the most important tension in Christian faith. And if we're going to walk in faith, if we're going to walk along the wire, walk the wire of faith, and particularly the wire of prayer, we have to have both both of those pictures, of those images of God, sustained simultaneously. And today, I want to explore that tension. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's begin by looking at this this line, hallowed be your name, the second line in the prayer. What does it mean to hallow somebody's name? What does it mean to hallow Somebody's name. Well, let's begin with somebody's name. Somebody's name in in this era, the era in which the scriptures emerge for us, all the way through actually scriptural history, but also today, somebody's name speaks of their reputation, doesn't it? If I say uh, somebody such and such has a bad name, I'm not talking about the fact that their parents made an error when naming them. You know, they gave them one of those names that's uh, really difficult to spell, or maybe we don't like the meaning of it, or we don't like the sound of it. No, that's not what it means. If somebody has a bad name, it means their reputation is in some way tarnished. Which 1980s ballad was it that went shot to the heart and you're to blame? You give love. A bad name. Come on, guys. Get with the program. It was Bon Jovi. It was Bon, John, Bon Jovi. Come on. You give love a bad name, you give love a bad reputation. The the, the vision here is a bad name is not a good thing to have. It speaks about somebody's reputation. It speaks something about their identity too, doesn't it? To have a bad name is to have a tarnished identity. Now in the Old Testament, God's name is a recurrent theme. And it speaks, it's a term that's used again and again for God himself as he is perceived and honored by people. His name is his reputation among his people. And the point of God choosing Israel was that his name, his reputation, his identity would be seen as holy, glorified among the people. He chose a people, uh, among the nations, I should say, he chose a people, Israel, that he could work in particularly so that every other nation would look at them and say, wow, 
Their God is not like our gods. Our gods, you know, we go into the temple, we sort of cut ourselves and do all this fancy stuff, but really we know there's not much going on. But their God, well, he's the God that brings them out of slavery in Egypt. Wow, who is their God? That was the purpose of Israel. Now, the particular property that's ascribed to God's name throughout the Old Testament and here in this prayer is that his name be hallowed. Now, spell check is a problem here because it it leads you to suggest that the name of God be hollowed, hollowed out. And that's exactly the opposite of actually what we're aiming for. The name of God isn't to be hollowed, to be emptied. It's actually to be full, full up. That's what it means for it to be hallowed, for it to be full, for it to be full of life, full of meaning. God's name is holy in that it's full of everything. God is is full. He's fullness itself. He is the only one who's holy. Holiness in the scriptures is seen as a primary characteristic of God. God is, we look around us and see virtues and we see wonderful things happening and, and acts of life and joy and everything else. And God, I need you to know, God is not them multiplied by a big number. God is the perfection of everything in the world that is good. The perfection of it. But even perfection is a word that's somehow incomplete. Even the word infinity doesn't even, is this because we begin to enable us to taste and see the, the, the vastness of him? Even to use the word vastness makes it sound as if there's a limit. He's so capacious, there's no limit. He's not, you know, Karl Barth said, you can't speak about God by speaking about man in a loud voice. I'm trying this morning, folks. But you just can't do it. The psalmist says, doesn't he, you know, when I come to the end, I'm still with you. His name is to be hallowed. It's to be set apart, seen as distinct, because he's so full. He's so everything. You see that my language is breaking down as it should. How how could I begin to describe what he's like? I can't. And neither can you. And so there comes a point in the Judeo-Christian tradition where we just come before him. And the only proper response is silence. Because words aren't enough, and they could never be enough. Hallowed be your name. But the translation here doesn't really help us, because it makes it sound as if what Jesus is teaching or asking his disciples is to go ahead and do some stuff to hallow his name. Now, in one sense, that's true, and we're going to come back to that by the end, because every sermon needs to have some application. But when we pray this prayer, what we're really praying is not that something would happen to make God's name holy. His name is already holy. What we're praying is that when we pray, we would see and recognize that he is holy. That we would recognize who he already is. To pray this prayer is to, is to be asking him, oh, open my eyes, open my heart, open my spirit to capture the wonder of who you are. I love this from Annie Dillard. 
author, she writes this, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? You know, we've sung all these songs, you know. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the dark. I mean, come on, guys. Do we not know who we're singing to? Oh, we should be carrying on a seat. She goes on. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. And you're saying, we need pews. We need pews. Get the pews back. They'll be more stable in a divine storm. Even the pubes, uh, pubes. <laughs> oh, can it be recovered? Is the sermon over? Oh, God help us. God help us. Even the pews. We'll be using the evening service recording. Oh, we'll be using the evening service this week. They should lash us to our pews! Oh, they should. Oh, dear. It's not the worst thing that's ever happened in a sermon to me, I will say that. So we might say that to hallow God's name is to recognize his godness. Last week we spoke about his goodness, and that's so important to us. We've got to recover a vision of the goodness of God. And I've got to say, in the, in the life of the church at the moment, there is such an attack on his goodness, on, the, on, on his identity as a good father. That is under assault at the moment. But if we just recover his goodness and we don't also find his godness, then we'll just be imbalanced. We'll just be lurching to the other direction. We've got to learn to hallow him. Ultimately, this is about a vision of who God is. What is your vision of God? How big is God in your mind? How big is God in your heart? How big is God in your life? How big? How big? Is there a limit to his capacity, to his ability, to his honor? I was having a conversation with our bishop, Bishop Paul Williams, via text, I should say. And he said this, it really stuck with me. I am more and more convinced that our puny vision of God is the primary reason we do not pray more fervently and courageously. Isn't that one of our biggest challenges and struggles? Particularly in the secular age, which basically teaches us that everything that needs to be done can basically be done through technology, through an iPhone, and that, that, or through medicine, whatever it is, this myth of progress. And actually, there's, there's no room for God. God can sort of play about at the fringes, if he likes. He's, he's, he's the one that we uh, sort of go to for, for frills. He's sort of a little garnish on the, on the top of the meal, but he's not really essential. He's not really the meal itself. And yet the church says, no, that's not sufficient. That's not a sufficient vision of who God is. Pete Gregg says this, in losing the godness of God, we struggle with prayer 
because we fail to grasp the mind-blowing privilege of simply being in the presence of the living God. Familiarity breeds apathy until we can barely be bothered to try. Look, church, here's what I'm saying. If you have domesticated God and all he is to you is the kind and loving father who sits alongside you every day, you've got half of it. But if you're not a little bit terrified as well, you haven't got the fullness of the vision of who he is. You know, Amy and I were talking the other day, and, and she had this, Amy's, if Amy's got lots of things to do, what she'll do is to start another project. And the, her latest project was, you know, she's, she had a, a sermon to prepare for at church. She was speaking at the orchard yesterday. She had two essays to write for St. Melitus. And so what she decided to do in the midst of that was to strip the carpet off the stairs, strip the varnish off the stairs beneath, and re-varnish them. I mean, who does that? That's what she did. Anyway, as she was in prayer, she just felt like God said, why don't you invite me to join you? And so she did. But she said to me, Johnny, it was really strange. As I invited Jesus to come and join me, I, I began to feel afraid. And we discussed that. I said, gosh, that's exactly right, isn't it? Like, I wanted him near me. I wanted him to be close. At the same time, I was a little bit scared. Because if he really came into the room, if he really was alongside me on the stairs, oh, wow. <laughs> Whoa. Because you know he's ascended, don't you? You know he's at the right hand of the Father. You know he's judging. You know, you know you're going to stand before him in judgment. And every one of the things you've ever done will be weighed before him. Every careless word you've ever uttered. Every action you've ever taken part in. Every sin you've committed. Every sin you've observed and haven't spoken up on. Everything. You'll see it and he'll see it and you'll stand before him. And I tell you there'll be mercy in his eyes. There'll be mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. But don't think that you're going to be standing in front of a teddy bear. You won't. You're going to be standing in front of the Lord of history, who became man, who humbled himself to death on a cross, but who God has raised up to the right hand, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We have to live in the tension. We need to pray to that Jesus. And the temptation is to give up on the tension. Uh, Anna Wellfield uh, uh, works just an amazing job with our kids. She said this to me uh, a while ago. She said, Johnny, the thing about tension is that it's not the same as balance. You get balance when you live in tension. But with tension... To maintain, you need to pull equally hard all the time in both directions. Typically, what I find when I speak to people about prayer, and in my own life it's the same, I like one of the visions of God a little bit more. So I pull a little bit harder, you know, in the one direction, I'll let the other go, and what happens is I fall over. No, 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 we've got to stand as the church together, pulling equally hard in both directions. And that, at times, hurts. It hurts because our bodies, our own spiritual lives become the place of warfare. They become the place where the wrestle between heaven and earth happens in our own prayer lives. And that often means, by the way, and I have this plan to say, but that often means if you're doing prayer right, it might get more difficult for you. 
It's not always supposed to be easy. And if you're doing the Christian life right, it will be difficult. We like one side of the tension typically more than the other, but we can't let go of it. Because if we do, we either end up with a God who, with whom we have no intimacy. If all he is is holy, if all he is is awesome and terrifying in his glory, then great, but can I come close to him? So we end up with a God with whom we have no intimacy, and that's not good news, by the way. That's not what I'm talking about today. Or on the other hand, we have a God who can provide warmth to us, but he can't help us, and so we lose hope. But to live in tension is hard. It's hard when so many of our friends seem to have given up on God entirely. It's hard in a world where belief in him is strange for some inexplicable. It's hard when we see suffering about us. It's hard when we see those who are close to us suffering. It's hard when we stand before the fact that we have no control over our lives. No, no control. We have no control over what happens to those that we love the most. It's hard to live in the tension It's hard when we live in the midst of our own pain and our own unanswered prayers. When we pray for God to act powerfully, invoking his holy name, and yet he doesn't answer, at least not in the way that we expect he would. You know, just this week, a dear friend of mine uh, had a car crash, gone in a car crash, he's in his early 30s in Ethiopia. And we were praying, a number of us, many, many people, thousands of people, praying for him. And tragically, he passed away. I was weeping Friday night just with the the children, just weeping, weeping, and being comforted by my own children, just thinking, how can this be? You know, if God was going to rescue anyone, it's him. This this guy, I tell you, is the most pure, kind-hearted person I think I've ever met. People always eulogize about people when when they've gone but I'm not, I'm not. I mean, I'm telling you, anyone would say this about him. A beautiful, beautiful man. What do we do in the midst of that? How can we live in this tension? Look, we've got to recognize it, don't we? Let's not pretend that this isn't difficult. Let's not pretend this isn't, at times, impossible. Times that this tension is pulling others apart, it seems. And I'm wrestling in this area at the moment. I want you to know that. I want you to know I'm wrestling. I I want to see God's activity. We are seeing incredible things here. We are seeing people people coming alive in God. As a a staff, every week we tell stories. Uh, We have like a two-week limit. You can't tell a story that's more than two weeks old. We never even get close. God is doing incredible things. And yet there are still things that he's not doing that we wish he were. And I can't stand before you and pretend that's not the case. I am praying, one of the things I'm praying, God, show us more power. More power. When I read this book, I just see that there's more of you than we're seeing. And it's not that I I ever expect you, God, to become some kind of divine vending machine that everything I ask for, you do. I know that you're God and I'm not, and yet I just know that you have to, I believe you want to do more than you're doing. I believe that's your will, and so how can I align myself with that? I don't know, but God, there must be more. 
And I don't want to lose hope and I don't want to lose intimacy. I'm going to keep in this tension. And what's interesting about the Lord's Prayer is Jesus takes a, a, a Hebrew prayer, a, a Jewish prayer called the Kaddish. It's one of the three most important Jewish prayers. And he sort of adopts it. There are significant similarities. Look at these alongside each other. On the left, we have the Kaddish. On the right, the Lord's Prayer. The Kaddish is magnified and holified, holified, hallowed. The worst thing I've said. Uh, Be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. And then we have our Father in heaven, hallowed be his name. You can see the significance, sorry, the similarity between the two prayers. What is interesting is that Jesus, it is Jesus who introduces the tension. It is Jesus that begins the prayer with Abba. It's Jesus that raises the prospect of attention in this prayer. Pete Gregg again says, there's an exquisite symmetry in the way that Jesus counterpoints the emphasis of his first four words, our Father in heaven, with that of the next four, hallowed be your name. As the biblical scholar William Barclay says, this saves the idea of the fatherhood of God from all sentimentality and sets down in unmistakable terms the inescapable obligation to reverence. Four words, the inescapable obligation to reverence. We, church, have an inescapable obligation to reverence. How do we do, how can we, Get that. Well, we need a new vision of God. I don't know how big your God is. I tell you this, your vision of God isn't big enough. I can say that with confidence now. I know mine isn't. (laughs) Don't you worry. But I know yours isn't too because there's no human who could ever fully encapsulate, apart from Jesus. He shows us fully what God is like. How can we learn, therefore, to hallow him? I want to suggest two things really simply and really quickly. First, let us Ask to see. You know, as I was praying through this week, I had all these practical ideas that that we can do this and we've got to do that and we've got to do the other. And I just think, honestly, this is a work of the Spirit, isn't it? Like if we're going to have a new vision of God, only He can give it. It's only the Holy Spirit who searches the deep things of God who can give us as His people a vision of Himself. And so actually what we do to align ourselves with him is just to say, God, would you do that? Would you? This has become one of my prayers now. Give me a new vision. Be thou my vision, O God of my heart. Would you be a new vision for me? Would you give me a new vision for who you are? A vision of you that's more aligned with your greatness. And yet we do see him do this. We do see him do this. He did this with Moses in Exodus 3, didn't he? Moses was, to all intents and purposes, minding his own business in Exodus 3. Now, I'll tell you this, he was in solitude, and there's something there. Um, But he was sort of just going about his own life, his own world, and God just interrupted him and said, there's this bush that was on fire, and God just revealed himself through this spectacle and began to reveal the divine name to Moses. And this was the moment that changed everything about Moses, and it began with a vision of God. God interrupted him, gave him. It was an encounter that made the difference. You know, Isaiah, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah again is at the beginning really of his ministry. He's pronounced some woe, but let me tell you, that's very easy to do. He still hasn't really encountered God. 
And he has this commissioning moment where he has a vision, and in the vision, he's in the very presence of God, and he gets a picture of how big God is. It says, the train of his robe was filling the temple. It was smoke, and all the other stuff was going on, and, and he just fell down on his face before God. He had this vision, this encounter of God, and he said, you are so big, I just can't even be in your presence. And the architect of the encounter was God, not Isaiah. And we've just got to begin by saying that this is something that only God can do. But I do believe we can ask for it. I do believe, in fact, that one of the signs of the Holy Spirit wanting to do it is that we begin to ask for it. He always moves first. But we begin as a people to say, God, give us a bigger vision. Are you willing to pray that prayer with me at the moment? In this season, would you pray, God, increase my vision of you? Ask him. Begin to ask him. Unsolicited encounters will be the norm. Now, not every one of us is going to have an encounter just like Isaiah or like Moses. Every one of us is going to look different. For some of us, it's going to be in the, in the kitchen on our own. I remember one of our great friends in America, Frankie, just on her own in the kitchen, just being overwhelmed with the presence of God. It's like the presence of God came into the room. In, uh, you've, some of you have experienced this in such a profound way. She knew that she was in the presence of God. Nothing burned, thankfully, in the kitchen. It was just, God is in here, and I'm in here, and whoa. <laughs> For others of us, it... Yeah, and God, and God is at different times and in different places, and for every person it's different. But I do believe he wants to reveal himself to us. And though it doesn't begin with us, I do believe there are things we can do to position ourselves. And I just want to say one thing quickly. I could speak here about time, about talent, about treasure. I actually just want to speak very, very briefly about time. How in your time, time is the thing that we are most poor in today. I'm not saying some of us aren't struggling financially. I know that, I know that we are. For many of us, we have more stuff and abundance than almost anyone in human history has ever had. In fact, one of the reasons we have so little time is because we've got so much stuff. But the real poverty, many of us, not all, but many of us experience is time poverty. I want to ask you this. If I looked, and if you looked at my schedule for the week, and I looked at yours, would I see a schedule that is hallowing the name of God? Would I? Or would I see something that was hallowing the name of my career? Hallowing the name of my family. Hallowing the name of my football team. Now those things are good things. They're gifts from God. But if we begin to hallow the gift and not the giver, we've, we've made an error. How do we set aside time for him? How do we do that? How do we dwell in adoration? How do we become people who marinate in adoration? Oh, so like, ooh, I can't wait to wake up and adore him. Is that the first thought you get in the morning? Me neither. I'm like, where's my coffee? Where is it? But even in the valley, we're to praise. Yes, we're to lament as well. But we marinate in his presence in those ways. We marinate in the stories of what he's done. And they're not always stories of what he's doing in our lives. Sometimes we look at our lives and we're saying, God, it, it feels like you've left me. I want to say that, is, that, that prayer is absolutely biblical. If you're praying that prayer at the moment, you are praying along with Jesus. What I am not suggesting for a minute is we become a happy, clappy church who deny the reality of human existence. We do no favors to God. We do no favors to the world if we do that. 
But we do, in the midst of the lament, say, God, you are enthroned. And because you're enthroned, I'm bringing in this complaint. And because you're enthroned, I'm bringing in my praise as well. How could any of us, with the story of how God established this church, you know we're here because God gave a man a dream. He prayed into the dream for two and a half years, between 2012 and 2014 and a half. And God acted. God established this church. How could we fail to believe in a God who's bigger than any one of our plans for our lives? So we need to ask him. George MacDonald said, we who would be born again indeed must wake our souls unnumbered times a day and urge ourselves to live with holy greed. Are you waking your soul unnumbered times a day and urging yourself to live with holy greed? Ask for him. Ask to see a new vision. Secondly, we ask to see, but we also bow the knee. This is just what happens when people encounter God. It's what happens with Moses. God says, look, take the shoes off your feet, the sandals off your feet. You need to know, Moses, this is holy ground. You're not walking into the pub here. This isn't a coffee shop. This is holy ground. You know, Isaiah's the same thing. As soon as he sees just the vision of the trail and of the rope, it's like he sees the end of the train of the rope and he just hits his face to the floor because of the glory of God. We need to learn to do this. Uh, uh, practically, this has become something for me. I begin now, partly actually happened when Bishop Paul came and spoke about his prayer time, but for me now, the day begins on my knees. I just do that as a practice. James, in fact, that just comes to mind. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the author of uh, James, you know he was known as camel knees? Because his knees were, were so uh, Calloused, I guess, because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer, just postured himself in adoration. What about if that was our reputation? Seeing God enables us to see ourselves differently. I'd be really wrestling with this personally. I want to give two images in my life, two pictures of how I've been struggling with this. They may or may not be relevant to you, but if they're not, then let's just, let's just take this as group therapy. The first, it has to do with fear of man. So I've been struggling with this for many years. That's got a lot better for me. But still, there's this part of me that wants you and lots of other people to be impressed with me. I read a book a number of years ago called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And you see, what I've realized again and what I keep realizing is that, that the problem of fear of man in my life is, is actually a problem of my vision of God. It's because my vision of God's much too small and my vision of myself is much too big. I'm so concerned, far too concerned with my name and not concerned enough with his name. I haven't been receiving that from the Holy Spirit as a rebuke, but as an invitation to bow the knee. I need to just begin on my, my knees and say, God, it's not actually about me, it's about you. So you do what you can do. The other manifestation of this in my life I want to speak to you about is exhaustion. I feel God has called me, I feel God has called us to being part of what he wants to do in these days to revive his church, to give his people a different vision of who he is and so that he would be glorified in the world. That's what I believe he wants to do. And yet what happens so quickly is I take on myself that part of, of the mandate to do that is I take it on my own shoulders and I become so quickly exhausted. Recently, I read a book 
on a particular issue in our culture. Uh, and that particular issue, I want to say I'm not a fan. And I became so overwhelmed by this issue that I became so down, almost depressed about it. And I took responsibility that belonged to him and him alone. It's as if I was saying, I don't trust you to do your job. I'm going to try and do your job for you. And that became so exhausting for me. I got ill. I was ill for about four weeks because I was taking on his responsibility. My vision of him was far too small. My expectation of what I was capable of doing was far too big. What about for you? How can you hallow his name? How do you need to bow the knee? Is there somebody? We spoke about it this morning, didn't we? Control. This is often the way. Is there somebody you're trying to control? Stop. Stop. If only my husband knew X, Y, Z. If only my wife would do this, that, or the other. If only my children understood. The wisdom. I'm speaking to them. If only the pastor would do his job, her job. We've got to release control, folks. We've got to release control. None of us is in control. If you think you're in control, it's an illusion. You're in denial. I'm not a psychologist, but I tell you that for free. You are in denial if you think you have a measure of control over your life. Release it. The antidote is to recognize our own smallness and to celebrate it, to revel in it, to enjoy it. What does the psalmist say? Though I am poor and weak, yet the Lord takes thought for me. I'm just a speck of dust and yet he thinks of me. That's a hallowed be your name prayer. Let's close this with a bit of Pete Gregg, extended edition. I walk outside at night and feel insignificant yet connected, part of something transcendent and vast. I whisper my prayers beneath the silent star fields, sensing that I am reaching the divinity within all this mystery in ways that my loudest, most desperate and defiant shouts might not. God seems infinitely close, dangerous yet familiar, faithful yet unpredictable, loving, but not necessarily nice. He goes on. After being told again and again over the years how deeply God loves me, as if no one else existed, and how powerfully he wants to use me, hey, we can all be history makers. It comes as a considerable relief to finally discover that I'm not actually that big a deal. I am, as the psalmists say, just us. I am, as Isaiah says, like grass that grows, withers and dies in a day. I'm a child who finally knows enough to know that I don't know much and that it's perfectly possible to trust in things I don't understand. Perhaps it's better after all to have a mustard seed than a mountain. I'd rather have a little faith in a great, big, unshakable God than a great, big, unshakable faith in a little God unworthy of the title. So what? Amen. We need a bigger God. It's just as well we have the biggest God out there, the inestimable, the immeasurable, almighty El Shaddai, God from before the ages, who will be glorified, who has been glorified, and who is glorified 
in his son Jesus who came, who took on flesh, the infinite God stepping into finitude for us, taking upon flesh in Jesus Christ, incarnating himself, living for us, dying for us, being raised and ascended for us so that every one of us could step into his infinity by faith and through his grace. You, 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 every last one of you, taste and see his goodness and his greatness, available to you by grace. There is nothing you can do to impress him. And there's nothing you can do to shake him off your tail. He's coming after you until you relent and until you repent. And he's not going to quit until the city and the world is speaking the prayer. Hallowed be your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did, both individually and in our lives together, so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening.